Before I get started up here, I am so grateful for all of you. And I appreciate the welcoming and just the absorption into the family here at Grace. Now, we were just talking about a little while ago, going on three years, me and my family, we're starting on our third year now, me and my family being here. And I really, I really wish that the crowds and more of those who came to the morning services would get to experience what goes on here in the evening because this is a blessing. It's been a blessing to me. It's been a blessing to my family. And once again, I just want to say I'm grateful for you guys. So let me open up in prayer and then we'll get started because I got a lot to say. All right. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for the gift of your word, Lord, and to be able to stand before my family here, Lord, and open it up and to share what it is you have to say to us tonight, Lord. So I just pray for your grace and your power um, as your word goes out, Lord, that it would take root in, in our hearts, Lord, that by your grace, you would give us the ability to live it out um, with the indwelling spirit that is inside of us, Lord. We thank you, Lord, and we give you all the honor and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. So about a year and a half ago, my family and I, we moved into our current location, and we were relieved, I would have to say, to be trading what was at the time in Napomo, a third-story apartment with no elevator access, with no washer, no dryer, and horrible parking. We were delighted to trade that in for a ground-level condominium here in Santa Maria with all the standard amenities, a connected two-car garage, and really we didn't have to lug any groceries or laundry upstairs anymore, three flights. So we were ecstatic. It was great. And it still is. I love our condo. It's a blessing. However, there was one piece of information that happened to slip my mind, but was brought back to my attention about the same time the holidays started to come around. See, me and my family, have, we've always went out when it came to decorations. And we began to decorate our condo inside and out. We placed decorations on the front door, on the entranceway, in the porch area, around all the windows, and it looked, it looked great. It was amazing. Until I received a text message from a very close friend of mine who also happened to be the president of the HOA that governs the complex our condo is in. I was very firmly yet graciously reminded by my friend that my family and I were in violation of our homeowners association's policy on outdoor decorations. Now, being that sarcasm is one of my spiritual gifts, <laughs> uh, I was tempted to make a case against the fact that the homeowners association policy logically could not apply to us because we didn't own the condo. We were renters. <laughs> we were renting. <laughs> but I figured I'd better hold off on that. I don't think my friend would have seen that to be beneficial to our relationship, nor do I think it would have went over good with the, the rest of the HOA. So, needless to say, the Reese family holiday decorating extravaganza is now limited 
to the four walls inside of our condominium. You see, whether I agree with the HOA policy or not, whether I like the HOA policy or not, they have been put into place as an authority over my life and the lives of my family members within that context. And my calling in that situation as a resident and as a Christian is to submit and endure the inconvenience of the no outdoor decorations policy. And not only that, but to pursue what is good, not just for me, but for my fellow neighbors also. Rather than to instinctively fight for my rights or be driven by the desire to defend myself, I am called to entrust myself, hand myself over to a just God for his sake, his glory, and for the good of those around me. Now, an HOA, I know and understand, it's a low-level example of a human authority or a human institution. But I believe the point that I'm trying to make here is exactly the point that the Apostle Peter is making in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. If you remember, we've been going through 1 Peter every time I've had the opportunity to teach to you guys. I'm sorry I didn't give you the text address earlier. But we're going to pick it back up where we left off a few months ago. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. And if you remember the context of this letter written by Peter, he is addressing a group of churches scattered throughout Asia Minor that he's referring to as elect exiles. This is a group of mostly former pagans, now turned Christians, who, because of their faith in Jesus, I'm sorry, because of their faith in Jesus Christ and the ongoing work of the Spirit in them, are now living as if they're strangers in their own land. See, like you and me, these are citizens of an eternal heavenly kingdom who, for the time being, are called to live as citizens of a temporary earthly kingdom. These are people who need to know how to properly live under the institutions and the authorities of earthly rulers, while never forgetting where their ultimate allegiance lies. This is an issue that Peter, through the power of the Holy Spirit, needs to help these believers work through and flesh out as first century Christians under the rule and reign of the Roman Empire. And this is an issue that we need to hear Peter on today. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to work through this and find out what it means for us to live out this calling in 2019 as Grace Baptist Church, as citizens of Santa Maria in the good old U.S. of A. So let's dig into this passage. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses, starting in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. 
We'll pause there. Mark Dever, pastor of, pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., and president of the Nine Marks Ministry, has said almost any government is better than no government. Now, depending on where you live, whatever your political affiliation may be, and whoever's reigning and ruling over you, you may agree or disagree with that statement. But there is no argument that that statement right there has a lot of power to stir up deeply held convictions within people. See, people may respond to their identity as citizens in various manners. Some people, in terms of their relationship to government, may see themselves as revolutionaries, ready to oppose and revolt against those in authority over them the moment they perceive any form of corruption or injustice taking place. Others may see themselves as patriots, always at the ready to defend and uphold the policies and the way of life of their nation against all its enemies, foreign and domestic. You may even know you may even know of a conscientious objector who, because of moral or religious reasons, takes a neutral position within their government and refuses to engage or get involved altogether. And I'm sure we all are familiar with the constant complainer, but we won't get into that. But what the Lord, through the Apostle Peter, is going to call these first century Christians to is not to see themselves primarily as revolutionaries or patriots or conscientious objectors, but rather their calling and our calling as citizens, as servants, and as sheep is to show honor, show respect, and pursue the good of those around us. Or let me put it this way. As elect exiles, we are called to submit to the authorities that God has placed over us and pursue the good of the community, of the city, and of the nation that he has placed us in. And we do these things for his glory and his purpose. We subject ourselves to the authorities that God has placed over us, and we become a force for good in the context he has placed us in. So let's flesh out what it means to be citizens of an eternal heavenly kingdom who are called to submit to and pursue the good of their temporary earthly kingdom. First off, Grace, we submit because rulers, governments, and authorities are God's ordained means of punishing those who do evil and praising those who do good. Now we understand this to be a general statement. I don't think any Christian is naive enough to, to, to ignore the fact that sometimes, more often than what we'd like, those who do evil, the lawbreakers, are the ones who receive the praise, while the ones doing good may be the ones who receive the scorn and condemnation. But for the most part, those governing authorities that the Lord has put in place, though imperfect and flawed, are the means in which God maintains order over human society. Those who seek to do evil, those who seek to do harm, they need to know that there will be consequences. A government's responsibility to its citizens is to keep them safe and enforce the laws and penalties of its society. When those who desire to do evil know that they, that they, should, that they will face punishment should they be caught, 
They tend to think twice before they act. Likewise, a government should recognize and congratulate and promote good behavior. When citizens seek to do good and be a blessing to those in their community and their city, those in authority should recognize it and promote it as a common shared value. Sadly, this is not the case in our country or in the world today. It seems like what we are seeing is the exact opposite. News stations and media outlets seem to have a never-ending supply of wicked headlines that are constantly bombarding us from all angles. No matter where you look, it feels like we're being force-fed stories. We're being caught up with the latest, or being caught up with the latest political. I'm sorry. Excuse me. We're being force-fed stories where we're seeing the promotion of blatantly inhumane and immoral behavior, and in between those stories, we're being caught up with the latest political scandal and corruption found at even the highest offices of our nation. So pray for our communities, Grace. Pray for our nation and its leaders. Because even in all that, even in all that corruption and that immoral behavior and the inhumane actions, even in all that, we are called to submit. Remember, even the most flawed and corrupt of government serves a purpose. Even if its only job is to maintain order in a society, we should see the law and order that a government brings as evidence of God's kindness and goodness towards us. And if we forget to see it as so, we need to be reminded of what a society looks like when government authority dissolves and anarchy takes over. All we need to do is look at the country of Venezuela. Have you seen how as its government has slowly dissolved and deteriorated, the anarchy and the chaos has escalated? Maybe in seeing that, we could all come to the agreement that almost any government is better than no government. And let's face it, if Peter can call a group of Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor to submit and subject themselves to the authority of the Roman Empire under the rule of Caesar Nero, a horrible man, especially towards Christians, if Peter could call the church to submit to that, then we don't really have too much of a case as why we can't or why we shouldn't submit. In fact, the only time we should not submit to those in authority over us is when we are commanded by them to do something that God forbids or when they forbid us to do something that God has commanded us to do. I'll repeat that. The only time we should not submit to the authorities that have been placed over us is when they are commanding us to do what God has forbid or when they forbid us to do what God has commanded. We see this, for instance, in the book of Daniel with the three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they refused to obey the edict to fall down and worship the golden image of King Nebuchadnezzar's God. Later on, again in the same book, we see Daniel in civil disobedience as King Darius issues an edict and says, For 30 days, no man shall petition any god or any other man except me. And what does Daniel do? He goes home, spreads the curtains of his window, and he prays to Yahweh. Even Peter, Peter who in this very 
letter, in this very chapter, is calling Christians, who is calling Christians to submit to every human institution. Even Peter did not submit to the Jewish authorities when in Acts chapter 4 and 5, they were told to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, him and John, and they took a beating for it. So the only caveat to our submission is when there is conflict between heavenly authority and human authority. Other than that, there's no exception. And in this instance, Peter doesn't give any because I don't believe that's his main purpose in this passage. See, it does not matter whether you see eye to eye with your government or not. Our calling as followers of Christ Jesus is to submit to them. It does not matter if you like them or not. It doesn't even matter if you voted for them or not. We're called to submit and do good. Why? Because as it says in this passage, it's the will of God. See, we entrust ourselves to a good God while we subject ourselves to the earthy rulers he has placed over us, all the while seeking to do good in the community he has placed us in. So we, for the sake of the Lord, we pay our taxes when our taxes are due. We check our speedometer when we're driving through that school zone, and we don't go over 25. We purchase our fishing licenses before we head out to do some surf fishing. And when we catch our limit in perch, we call it a day. And we, no matter how crazy it drives us, we don't put up decorations outside when the HOA policy strictly forbids it. It's crazy. But I would not stop there. I would not limit our calling as Christians to do good by just submitting to those positions of authority over us. That's definitely part of it. But I believe another way we can be doing good in our roles as saints and citizens is to actively pursue, actively seek to do good in the community that the Lord has placed us in for his glory, our joy, and our neighbor's good. As I said earlier, as elect exiles, we are ambassadors of Jesus and his kingdom, and we are called to pursue that which is good and beneficial for our communities and cities. Think of it like this, Grace. Wherever there is a Bible-believing, Christ-proclaiming, gospel-saturated church, there is a force for good on the move in that community. Grace, we are a people who have been set free from the bondage of sin and death. No longer enslaved to our fallen nature, we've been set free to now live for the only true King, Jesus. Sin is no longer our master, Christ is. And now as exiles on this earth, we use our freedom to willingly come under the authority of those that God has placed over us, and we use that freedom to do good. As citizens of an eternal heavenly kingdom, we have been given a great calling. And that is to live out the implications of our union with Christ in the midst of our temporary earthly kingdom. We proclaim Christ and his gospel with our words and we display its power with our lives. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, because of his life-giving spirit inside of us, because of the transforming, mind-renewing power of his word, and because of the local body of believers he has called us to, the Christian is one who is able to take what they believe to be true about God 
and now begin to, by the grace of God, live that truth out as ambassadors of Christ's kingdom. We are embedded agents of reconciliation in a fallen world. This has always been the call given by God to his elect people as they live as exiles in this world. This was the call of God's elect exiles in the Old Covenant, and it's the call of his elect exiles today in the new, under the New Covenant. We see in passages like Jeremiah 29, 4-7, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Excuse me. Multiply there and do not decrease. And here we, in that passage in verse 7, he says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Let's say that again. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Where do we find our good? By pursuing the good of our community that we live in. Not only will our neighbors benefit from lives transformed by the gospel who seek to do good, It'll change our lives in the community, too. See, we have the great privilege, Grace, to be intercessors for our communities. Instruments in the hand of a great Redeemer. Praying for the good of those in our neighborhoods. And walking in faith, believing that our God will show up. As the love of God fills us up, as His grace and mercy overwhelms us as His children... It overflows onto those around us and displays itself in the serving and the loving of our neighbors. Whether that be cleaning up the front of a Jewish temple as we participate and serve Santa Maria, or spending time with the guys at the Central Coast Rescue Mission in mentorship and coming alongside them to serve in community outreaches. It could be something as simple as picking up trash as you walk around the block. Or something more of all, such as running for public office and being an agent of of change from within that governing authority. As we pray for the end of abortion, our nation's own Holocaust, we partner with organizations like CareNet that provide alternatives and resources to pregnant women and young couples who are in need of our help and who need to know that there is a God who sees their struggle and he has provided a hope for them in this life and the next. Grace preached the gospel, proclaimed the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and its life-giving power. Do it with your words and display it with your love for those around you. See, what I believe Peter is getting at in the first portion of this passage is that those who reign and rule over us and those who live and work with us, they're image bearers of God, whether they're believers or not. And that truth alone makes each one of them worthy of honor, respect, and dignity. Yes, we're called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. But that does not mean we turn a blind eye to the needs of our community. 
We are called to worship and revere our triune God alone because only he is worthy of worship. But that does not mean we have a license to disrespect the president, our governors, or anyone else in authority over us. Remember who put them in authority. Remember, Grace, our part of our calling as citizens of the kingdom of God is to be a city on a hill in the midst of a city in the grave. We're called to be a light to all nations, nations that are plunging deeper into darkness as we speak. This is a calling that must flow from who we are in Christ and all that he has done for us and to us. And it it is a calling that was trailblazed by Christ himself. And it is a calling not just in terms of our status as citizens living under governmental authority, but also, as we'll see, this calling pertains to every relationship we find ourselves living, working, and serving in. We'll pick this passage back up at, in verse uh, 18. We're going to go from 18 through 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, One endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I think I'm going to drink this whole bottle by the time this sermon's over. Here, Peter starts off this portion of the passage addressing a specific group within the church. He's talking to those who are servants. Now, this word servant is originally referring to household slaves. But it's important to note that within this context in the first century, Slavery was different than what we learn about in early America or Britain. The slavery we have become familiar with from American history was almost always the result of kidnapping and almost always involved very brutal and harsh treatment of slaves, sometimes even the killing of the slaves. Dr. Juan Sanchez, senior pastor at High Point Baptist Church in Austin, Texas, and also council member of the Gospel Coalition, speaks to the issue of slaves in 1 Peter like this. In the Roman Empire during the first century, slavery was different. Slaves were often well-educated. They might have served as physicians or tutors to children. Though it was difficult, slaves had the opportunity to buy their freedom. Don't get me wrong, slavery was never desirable. The New Testament nowhere affirms slavery. I'll say it again, the New Testament nowhere affirms slavery. It merely regulates it as an existing social structure. 
Peter's concern is not upholding slavery, but the importance of maintaining a faithful gospel witness within the structured orders of that society. So you could even make the case that the fact that Peter is addressing these slaves or servants is an acknowledgement of the imago Dei, the image of God in which they're made. The fact that he's even addressing them shows that he's giving them dignity. He's acknowledging their worth and value and dignity as image bearers and is elevating them to a place of dignity. He's deconstructing the barrier between slave and free in this first century context, a barrier that may have most likely carried over into the church. And as Paul says in Galatians 3, is reminding them that they are both one in Christ. But nevertheless, he calls those who find themselves as slaves or as servants to submit to their masters and to do it with respect. And not just to those masters who are good, not just to those gentle masters or kind or honest masters, those types of masters are easy to respect. They're easy to submit to. But for the sake of the Lord, he says, for the Lord's purpose and for a faithful gospel witness, he calls them to sub submit themselves to unjust masters, the harsh master, the unkind master, the crooked master. I wonder what the reaction of these first century Christians must have been when they heard this letter especially this passage, when they heard it read out aloud in the midst of the congregation. I wonder what it must have felt like as a slave in one of these congregations, as an elder stood before you and in front of everyone else read the words, Slave, submit to your unjust master. I wonder what some of the responses of these slaves, these brothers in Christ now, would have been. Maybe it would have sounded something like this. Are you kidding me? This guy is constantly humiliating me in front of his family and his friends. I break my back for this guy every day in his house, in his field, and what do I get for it? Humili humiliation? Scraps for dinner? There's days I just can't take it anymore. There's days I'd rather run away and escape. There's days I'd rather be a fugitive slave than have to answer to this guy. I miss my family. I just want to go home. I can't wait to pay off my debt to this guy and be a free man again. And Lord, you're calling me to respectfully submit to this jerk? Lord, do you not know how hard it is? Do you not know how much I'm suffering as a servant, as a slave to this person? Now, how about if we fast forward a couple thousand years to 2019? You may not be a household slave, but you are a servant. Every, every believer in Christ is a servant. First and foremost to the triune God of the universe, and then in other areas of our lives. As children, we're called to respectfully submit to and serve our parents. Through our school years, we're called to submit and respect those teachers and school authorities that have been placed over us. And then we get married and we're called to lovingly and sacrificially serve our spouses. We go to work and we work hard and we aim to do good in the workplace as a servant underneath the authority of our supervisors and our bosses. 
See, whether at home, at school, at work, or yes, even in the church, we are called to subject ourselves, to submit ourselves to the authority of those placed over us, whether they are good, gentle, and kind, or unjust, harsh, and crooked. We are called to submit ourselves to the authority that God has placed over us, all the while seeking to bring him glory and to do good to those around us. So what's your reaction? How do you react when you hear that call? Maybe it sounds something like this. Are you kidding me? (laughs) My husband is a harsh man. It's been years since he's even told me he loves me. I've taken care of him. I've served him. I've loved him with all that I have. And what do I get in return? Criticism and judgmental looks from down the bridge of his nose. He's not even a believer. He mocks my faith. I've prayed and prayed for the Lord to save this man, and all I've ever gotten in return, in return is mistreated. I'm suffering as this man's wife, and Lord, you're calling me to continue to serve him with respect? Do you know what it is you're asking of me, Lord? Or it might sound something like this. I've worked 15 years for this woman and her company. Rarely have I ever called in sick taken time, or taken time off from work. In fact, who is the one they always call to come in early to, sit, to, stay, late, or to stay late when we fall behind our quota? It's me. And what have I received for my faithful, dependable service to this company? Nothing. No recognition. The boss takes credit for all my work. I'm the butt of all their jokes. They tease me and mistreat me because they know I'm a believer. They see me reading my Bible in the lunchroom. That one time when I lost it and I gave them a piece of my mind, what was their response? And you call yourself a Christian? What am I to do? I've had the opportunity to go other places, but what if it's just the same old thing at the next place? God, how can you call me to submit and respect the boss and supervisors who treat me like that? Lord, I have faithfully served these people in this company for over 15 years, and I'm suffering here as their employee. Do you have any idea what it is you're calling me to endure? Let me just say to you tonight, Grace, he sees you. He knows all that you've endured for his name's sake. When all you've sought to do is bring glory to him through your words and deed and still have been mistreated in the process, he sees you. He sees how you've been mistreated. He knows the harsh words that have pierced your heart and have caused you pain and suffering. He knows the humiliation and the mockery you've endured as you've bitten your tongue and prayed for the strength just to get through one more day. He sees you and he knows And just to make it clear, we're not talking about suffering we endure because of our own bad decisions here. If you're a jerk at home to your spouse, or you're a lazy employee and your boss is constantly having to get on you about that, that's not the type of suffering that Peter is referring to here. That type of suffering doesn't bring any glory to God. That's not unjust suffering. That's just the consequences of being a knucklehead. But as the passage says, when mindful of God, when understanding that he has put in place those who have authority and power over us, 
And because we fear and revere God over man, so we submit to and respect his systems of authority, we please our Lord. And he will reward our faithfulness in that. You may not get recognized before man for the good that you do, but you will receive honor and your reward before the living God. I wish I could stand up here in front of you, brothers and sisters, and tell you that as long as you live a faith-filled life of pursuing righteousness to the glory of the Lord, that you will avoid suffering. In fact, a lot of preachers have done that. It's a common belief, for instance, within the prosperity gospel teaching, which, by the way, is a false gospel, that if one just has enough faith and is obedient enough, they will never suffer because God won't allow you to suffer. And if you do encounter suffering, then it must be due to unconfessed sin or some disobedience in your life. However, we know that is not true. All it takes is being a follower of Jesus for about 15 minutes, and we know that that teaching is false. Let's pick it back up in verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Suffering for the Christian isn't a possibility. It's not likely that you'll suffer. It's certain that you will suffer. It's part of our calling as followers of Christ. He is our good shepherd, and as his sheep, we follow where he leads. We follow in his steps. He has trailblazed a path for us that leads us directly to the Father. He's guiding us home. But that path home, a good part of it takes us right through some of the most painful and difficult seasons of life we'll ever experience. We will suffer. And some of that suffering will be at the hands of others. And even in that, we are called to submit and endure. Peter says Christ is our example of how we should respond to suffering at the hands of others. Yes, he does know exactly what he's calling you to endure. He can identify with your suffering under unjust authority because he himself suffered unimaginable injustice. When we think of all that Christ endured, the mockery, the slander, the public humiliation, being spit on, having the beard ripped from his face, the lashings on his back, and finally his death on the cross, we see a man who in all of that did not respond by cursing his oppressors. He did not respond by threatening. He didn't retaliate at all. Rather, he entrusted himself to his father who sees and knows everything and is a just judge. I mean, think about that. The incarnate son of God subjected himself to the religious leaders of his day. The king of the universe 
subjected himself to the Roman Empire. And all their governing authorities. The Lord of Lords became the suffering servant and subjected himself to unjust authorities because in doing so, he knew he'd be bringing his father great pleasure. He endured because as the good shepherd he is, he knew of the great good he'd be bringing about for those in his flock. He endured suffering. He endured injustice, being mindful of his father, entrusting himself to his father, and focusing on the great good that would come from it. In the midst of his suffering, he was looking forward to what his suffering would accomplish for his people. That's how we're called to suffer. We're called to entrust ourselves to a good father who is accomplishing good in us and through us out of the worst seasons in our lives. This is what we've been called to, to submit, to endure, and to do good. This is the path we will travel as we follow the voice of our shepherd all the way home. This is what it means to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. That is the example that Christ has left us. But Christ didn't just stop at leaving us an example. If he did, that wouldn't be good news. Because no matter what example he leaves for us, we're absolutely powerless to follow it. See, when God sets a standard, only he can meet that standard. And neither God nor his standard will ever change. He will never lower his standard. The bar will always remain the same. Which left at that is bad news for us. Because we're sinful. There's days that I don't even live up to my own standard. How in the world am I ever going to live up to God's? But here's the good news. Peter gives it to us right here in these last two verses of this chapter. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You know what these verses are saying right here? They're saying Christ not only sets the example, but by grace through faith in Christ and his life, death, and resurrection, we now have the power to follow his example. You are a new creation by grace through faith in Christ. You have been redeemed. Every sin you've ever committed and ever will commit, paid for by Christ on the cross. You now stand justified before a holy God. Your debt for your sin has been paid for by another the righteousness of Christ has been credited to you, credited to you, and his spirit now lives in you, enabling you to live out the calling that he has placed on you, empowering you to submit to every human institution and governing authority, whether they be just or unjust. His spirit now gives you the strength and reminds you of the hope to come that enables you to endure the suffering at the hands of others without sinning just as Jesus did. And when you do blow it, because we all do, you have the, assur the assurance as a child of God that you are forgiven and loved. The triune God of the universe has forgiven you and he loves you. That is great news. 
The greatest motivator for obedience and holiness in your life should be the fact that you are unconditionally loved by your Heavenly Father. In his book, Enjoying God, author Tim Chester says, What you do may not be perfect, but God will look on you as a father looks on a, smile, looks on a small child. We have pictures in our home that small children have drawn us, scribbles, that even need a word of parental explanation at the bottom. I'll not mention who the artists are, but they're all rubbish. But we still hang them in our home because as honorary parents, we regard them as beautiful. A loving father delights in his children despite all their failings. And there is no father more loving than our heavenly father. What a joy it is to know that as we set out to live our lives for God and his glory, our acceptance before him will never be determined by our performance, but always and only by the finished work of Christ. That's good news, Grace. That's good news for us as we follow the example Christ laid before us to submit, to do good, and to endure, the, endure under the authorities that he has placed over us. We can rest assured that in the hardest and most difficult of seasons, our Heavenly Father, because he loves us and is at work in us, that he is sovereign over all authorities. He's sovereign over all suffering. And his children, and as his children, we rest assured that he is working all things, which includes injustice and suffering, corruption and persecution. He's working all those things together for his glory and our good according to his purpose. And that good and that purpose is to conform us, mold us more into the image of his glorious son, Jesus. That is our hope in all of this, that God will get the glory and that we'll get more of him. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for this church, Lord. I thank you for what you're doing in it and through it, Lord. And Lord, I know that as as the gospel and Jesus Christ, Lord, become the center of more and more of our lives here and more, and more of the community around us, of their lives, Lord, that we will start to get some pushback, Lord. But that's okay. We're doing this for your glory, for the, the good of the community around us. And you've empowered us to go out there and be your ambassadors, Lord. So no matter what we may face tomorrow or the week after, Lord, we can endure, Lord. Not because we're strong, not because we're tough, Lord, but because your spirit dwells inside us. And this is what you've called us to do. This is what you empowered us to do, Lord, to be ambassadors of hope, ambassadors of reconciliation in a lost and fallen world. It is a great honor, Lord, to be used by you in your plan of redemption for those around us. Help us, Lord, by your grace. Give us the power to endure and to accomplish the purposes that you have set before us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.